Welcome to the Exponentially Me podcast. Have you ever wondered if we can work better, if we get along better, and if leaders can really influence that? In this podcast, these are some of the questions we will be answering. We'll be talking to some amazing people from all around the world, not just thinkers on this, but the doers, giving you practical information that can make you a better colleague and even a better leader. I'm Exindval. Today, we have our first full professor on the podcast, John B. Molidor. He's president of the Michigan State University Flint Area Medical Education. He focuses on helping people understand how their brain, communication, and interviewing can work together. I first met John when I interviewed him as the president of the Global Speaker Federation, and I've been intrigued by his views on the human condition ever since. Well, Stephen Kirby once said, what you do has a far greater impact than what you say. We begin at the beginning by talking about how babies connect with people. This leads us to discuss facial expressions and the limits of video calling. We speak a lot about how brains are wired and what we can do to change that wiring, especially later in life. He tells us about how labels affect us and how we can avoid them. One of the parts of neuroscience I found especially fascinating was talking about the connection between the body and the brain. We finished by talking about intentionality and how important deliberate actions can be to us. Well, let's listen to Dr. John Molidor. The one thing I wanted to ask you, John, is if we say leadership is a relationship, what does that mean to you? So I'm going to go all the way back to uh, when you're born. So from the moment you were born, your brain's been looking for wiring instructions. And those wiring instructions come from other people. And so literally from the moment you were born, you're starting to build relationships. It's also, as a side note, it's why if babies are not touched or handled or, or uh, hugged, uh, it creates some problems for them later on in life. So it's wired into you that we are social beings and that we need to be building these relationships. So don't have the relationships, pretty hard to lead. You know, when we look at this, like the COVID lockdown and everything we have at the moment and people living in isolation, so if we have this need to connect and we learn from a very young age to connect, um, what do you think that has done to us during this lockdown period and, and all this isolation? Yeah, I think the sheltering is, has hurt us in many ways because um, your sense of wanting to belong is gone because it is hard to touch another human being across the screen here. You sign, we can't reach out, you know, through our cameras and <laughs> touch someone. Although I suspect someday in the future, maybe we will be able to, but you can't do that. So we lose that. And so I don't know if you've noticed even after some of the zoom calls or uh, the upstream calls or people want to linger afterwards. And I think it's this need to connect this need to touch and so we have to come up with different ways to try to connect and belong. And it's been hard. It's been really, really hard. And so I think if people take that little bit extra time afterwards, and since we can't physically do it, it's just to say, use the words. 
you know, I miss you. I miss being together. Um, you know, I miss gathering with you and, and just sitting around because although, yes, I can see, you know, your facial reactions for me to something I say over the screen, it is very different when we're face to face or in person. And I think we miss that. I think this is, I don't know if the statistic has been scientifically validated, but there's this sort of axiom that, um, a huge chunk of our, of our communication is through facial expression, let's say 70% or something like that, and, only, and the rest is only body language or content. Um, do you think that's true? So the original research on that is, is no, it's, it's not true, although it's out there in the literature. And so what I would say, though, is that the, the brain will interpret visual image in like 13 milliseconds. It's, it's such incredibly fast. So what happens is the visual cortex then gathers this information. It, they use it in very quickly to make decisions. That's why then you're reading cues, whether you read people's eyes or, or, or face or how they move their body. So your brain is really good at interpreting images or, you know, you get it very, very fast. But in terms of then the, the communication, some of that research is pretty flawed and, uh, you know, 5% words and what is it, 30% or 38%, blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was really about likability versus a, a visual. But you interpret an image very quickly. The visual becomes very, very important. Do we interpret visual faster than auditory, for instance? Yeah, it's even faster than uh, auditory. But your visual and auditory are the two main ones that that you want to pay attention to because <clears throat> they're what we would call high-fidelity signals. And so uh, pay very, very close attention to what's going on visually and auditorially. I think that might also explain why it's so difficult for us in this disconnected world. If we have this built-in need and those releases of oxytocin sort of go for it, get trying to connect, you know, where's my relationship drug right now? I want to hug, you know, and, and, and I cannot see your face properly. And I'm constantly straining to, to do both the visual and the auditory cues. I think that could that explain why we're tired? Absolutely. And then let's say you add 10 more people or 20 more people to your call. And then you have to visually, you're scanning the different boxes and, oh, what's going on over here? Oh, look, somebody's cat just walked into the screen, you know, or, oh, what what's going, I wonder what that is behind uh, Eckstein, you know, is that, what? what is that? Or you try to read, I don't know if you do this, if somebody has a bookcase behind them, I'm kind of checking out what they've read, I'm reading the titles of their book. And so you're, you're but trusting. I've Mine is blurred out, so you don't you can't really see them. <laughs> I know, sorry, yeah, you know, and so we see this stuff blurring out, and you know, and it's like, so your eyes and brain, and 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 you're trying to process all this stuff. It's fatiguing. It's hard to keep keep doing it. Part of the reason is, and and I'll say this first in layperson's terms, the brain is lazy. From a neuroscience term or perspective. The brain is always trying to figure out how is it going to budget its energy, and because it's it's, it's wants to make sure it saves enough or has enough, and so it's always budgeting. And so we would say, when given a choice, most brains will uh, do the least amount of energy. 
And yet here you are in a call and you're, you're having to look at the different boxes. I'm trying to make sure, you know, from your facial inspections, is this hitting with you? Is this making sense with you? And then it's like, and so you're, you're processing and then you're processing it probably times the number of little boxes that you have in your call. Fatiguing, just flat out uh, fatiguing from a visual perspective. I know when I was in the military, um, one of the things they taught us is to scan from right to left instead of left to right. Um, and so that's something I used when I was in the in the bush, basically um, hunting as well. You know, that grew up in Africa. This is something you're raised with. Um, and so now, when I go to a game park and I'm just looking for animals, I also do the same scanning technique. But I've noticed that um, anything that moves triggers me first. You know, and so what you were saying about the cat walking across the screen. Any movement will distract me, and it's really how you have to concentrate to keep your mind with it with all these movements that you're trying to figure out. Exactly. And so <clears throat> the, the brain loves movement. So if you're giving a presentation, uh, move. Um, if you're putting something on a slide deck, use animation. Move because it will catch the eye. Now, let me backtrack a little bit <clears throat> to what you said about uh, you scan right to left. Now, the alphabet that you grew up learning, did you read left to right? Yes. So typically what happens is because now you read left to right, that's become a habit. It's become a reflex. <clears throat> if you go right to left you have to take more energy and pay more attention. So it's probably a good way because you're doing it differently. So now you have to expend a little bit more energy. So you pay attention a little bit more. And so that's probably why that works. But movement probably trumps all of that. And that you kind of go, look, something's going on. Or there goes the cat. There goes the dog. Or, oh, look, the picture's falling off the wall behind, you know, one of the participants. When we think about this and the energy expenditure and how difficult it is, what can we do to make, let's start with connection, um, easier in an online world? So I would play around with what's your view? Like if on this one, obviously, it's the two of us. So it's pretty easy. I mean, the focus can be, you know, so I'm going to kind of keep looking at you. The problem is where are you on my screen or camera? And so it's like trying to position that to make it really easy. You can change it then to the speaker view. The only problem with speaker view often is that whoever speaks, then their, their image pops up. <laughs> And that may not be the one that you want to be looking at because they coughed <laughs> and that caused the, uh, their screen to, to pop up. So I would say in terms of the energy, we would say that you can relax your brain by going to a landscape view. So you just take in the whole view. So a lot of times if I'm starting to get fatigued, but I don't want to be like shut my camera off or be looking down. I would just sort of let my eyes expand all the way across the screen. So that helps a little bit because it's very hard that if you do the landscape view to look at details. So I try to be very much aware of, am I highly focused or am I a little bit more diffused? And so I try to go back and forth 
and not always track every single thing that's going on because that's the attention detail. I'll be expending energy like crazy versus do the expanded view. But then when I connect, it's, it's probably similar to just any uh, being on TV or video is make sure I'm looking directly at the camera because if I'm looking at the camera, then it looks like I'm looking at you. If I'm looking here at my laptop, which I am, now it looks like I'm not even looking at you, right? But now I'm looking at the camera, I'm back to you. So I think whenever I can, I'm trying to make sure that, again, the sort of the classic talk to the camera. Yeah, that's on the visual side of things and in a Zoom call. But let's take that a little bit further. Why don't we, if we look at leaders currently um, and leading people in organizations, we used to be able to have a little chat around the coffee machine and we would be able to read each other's body language, we'd be able to interpret things. We'd have multiple meetings a week. I remember there was a study out, I think it was four to six hours per week that you have to see leaders, have FaceTime with a leader. It doesn't necessarily mean one-to-one, -one, but to be able to connect and understand their expressions and, and what they need as well. And so, but from a leadership perspective, what can we do to help people to connect in our teams, in our, in our organizations, to, to build those bonds even in a time of being digitally connected but physically disconnected? Yeah, I think one of it is make sure that you're taking time to sort of, I'm going to say, get to know your team. And that, that's hard, though, because it's going to take some time to do it. So I'm a big fan of make sure that you know something about the person. So, and again, I'll use us as an example. So when we first met, I wanted to make sure I knew a little bit more about your background. And then we moved easily into, I think we called it the three M's, you know, the uh, uh, military, uh, ministry, and medicine. And we talked about uh, the three M's because I knew you had shared a little bit about your background. So if I know a little bit about your background, then I'm able in the relationship or connection, I can then use that language make references. You've already made reference in terms of then the military, in terms of scanning right to left. And it's like, that wouldn't mean anything to me if I didn't maybe have that context because it's like, oh, what, what's, what's he doing in the military? What, you know, what did he do? It was an example that you're using of the visual, but I knew that already about you. And so whenever you can, I guess, I would say as a leader, get to know your people. And the old model it's like, keep, keep distant, you know, don't, don't, don't get close to your employees. I'm not saying that you have to become their friend. I'm not saying, but it really helps if you know something about them. And so mine was simple with you. It was sort of like, where were you born and raised? How many siblings did you have? Where were you in the, you know, the order if you were not an only child? What did your mom do? What did your dad do? Or what did your care provider do? And then I asked you, what were the most important values they, that you were raised with? I mean, that's pretty simple. It's not, not a ton of questions I'm asking. Now, as you go to more higher order, it's like, all right, where did you do university or where did you do training? I could pick those things up. But if I have a sense of where you were born and raised, where you were in the sibling order, what your mom did, dad did, and then what were the key values that you grew up with or are instilled, 
that gives me a basis that I think I, I can lead from because then I, as the leader, should be able to change my language or words or concepts to say, all right, so Exine, if we want to move for this, we're going to have to sort of have some type of routine or regimen set up. So again, I might use the language of military or maybe ministry. And so that's, that's how I would probably approach it. Again, get to know your people. I get that. I, one of the things I tend to do is actually two things I do is um, firstly, get to know people, as you said. And it's also always interesting to hear how people talk about their family. Because those were the first people they encountered and the first people they built relationships with. So that tends to inform your way of making relationships with others later. And for me, that's always a fascinating bit just to know, okay, these are the areas that might be difficult or might be a challenge. The other thing that, I, that I've <laughs> rather recently started doing is a trick that Chris Voss describes in his book, Never Split the Difference. I don't know if you know Chris Voss, but he's a hostage negotiator for, that uh, used to work for the FBI. Um, he's running a company called Black Swan now where they basically focus on that. And um, Chris has this trick. He says, ask open-ended questions, but only ones that start with how and what. And then when you summarize, it's a combination of two things. You paraphrase, which is your understanding of what the other person has said, and you label the emotion. Because if you do both, people will either correct you on the facts or they will correct you on the emotion. But once you hit both of those, people usually say something in the lines of, you're right. The moment you get it wrong and they're fed up with you, they usually say, you're right. <laughs> it's a slight difference, but no difference. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little sarcasm in there. <laughs> and so... Um, it seems to work quite well. And I, I, it's, it's something that I've been working with some leaders on and it works for them as well. And, and it's just, as you said, it helps you to establish that rapport and connection and at the same time allows you to get to know a little bit about a person. So let's take it all the way back to what we mentioned about that, again, from the moment you were born, your brain's looking for wiring instructions. Where are those wiring instructions coming from? Typically, your parents, the care providers, and siblings initially. Then maybe it's school, colleagues, classmates, things like that. But knowing a little bit then about the family, I think, is actually wise. Without being intrusive, um, you do need to be prepared, be prepared as a leader that sometimes what they tell you is a little bit traumatic and it's a little bit scary. But in the same token, now you know something about them so that you're not inadvertently triggering then bad memories or, you know, trauma, or you start to understand, oh, that's why you react the way you do, or you may go, oh, I see now why you react, because you're interpreting my behavior through the lens of what happened that might have been traumatic or not so great growing up. But that ties all the way back to then, um, asking, you know, about family and, and, and I like the, both the factual and emotional, um, quick side note. I, I think, um, we have broken these two areas apart, which is absurd. Uh, the brain is 
you know, your brain and spinal cord are have connections to all your organs. And then there's connections from your organs back up to your spine and, and brain. And so why we've separated this makes no sense to me. They're, they're all hand in hand. And that's the other thing is uh, like, you know, saying to people, oh, you're too emotional or you're too. No, it's all part of this continuous communication that goes on all the time. And to label that is really it's not correct from a neuroscience perspective. And that's, I find that fascinating that you just said, because some people have labeled me as too emotional. And my contention is that the fact that I can talk about my emotions doesn't make me emotional. It just means I am in touch with them, I understand what they are, and I communicate around them and say, well, this is the way I feel. Absolutely. And then your thoughts are not separate from your emotions either. They, they go hand in hand. And it's like one may sort of inform the other or feed it back and forth. And, um, yeah, so I, I, we just, the more and more that, that's coming out in the neuroscience world is, that, again, this is just a continuous communication loop that's happening inside of you. And then you bring in someone else's and you're trying to interpret that. And I think the more that, that one can be aware. So, again, we're talking about to leaders. The more you can become aware of what your strengths are, your limitations, uh, what you're good at, what you're not so good at, then make sure you're either surrounding yourself with other people so you don't have blind spots. So that's the key to me of building strong teams is making sure you have the mix. Then you have to create a safe place. And sometimes as a leader, but actually it's, it's the other, the whole team has to start speaking up and saying, you know, it's okay for Eckstein to say this. It's okay for Eckstein to feel this way or to think this way. And you, you have to create that environment. And that's, you're, you should be working on that continuously. It takes energy and it's hard, but it, it makes a huge difference in the end. I think that rings true for me as well. It, 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 as a leader, you create the environment for your people to be their best selves. And if you're not focused on ensuring that environment, I think you're not just missing a beat, you're doing a disservice to the people you lead. Um, but anyway, you're talking about the, the, the brain that keeps on changing and starts off when we're, we're, we're really young. But when does that stop? So what we know is that up to about age 25, the brain can rewire itself pretty easily. So we're talking here about neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to wire and rewire itself. So up to age 25, plus or minus a year or two. So it's not like, boom, you hit age 25. So on your 25th birthday, it's like, wham, a wall goes up. <laughs> it's, so it's pretty fluid up to age 25. You can also see why we would uh, kids can learn languages much easier when you're younger because the brain's looking for connections, and we would say that the the neurons actually sample other neurons to figure out what goes with what. Over time, then those neurons there the phrase that you hear in neuroscience is tuned and pruned, so they get they get wired tighter, and then if you don't use certain neurons, they get pruned away. After age 25 much harder then. It's going to take a lot more energy. And this becomes critical to be aware of. So we would strongly urge 
parents to give their kids as broad an education as possible, um, to get exposure to as much diversity as possible, because then it, it's that's the wiring that's going on. You also, again, I'm going to cycle all the way back to what we talked about. So if you were given a steady, steady diet of uh, conversations from your family, it's like, Extinct, never trust anyone outside the family. Or extinct, government is bad. Government will hurt you or um, whatever. If it, so if it's that constant, constant, over and over and over, it takes a lot as a kid to overcome that <clears throat> because that's your wiring instructions. You're going to take that into adulthood after age 25, and that's your belief. So we would then say, be willing to look at your beliefs because you can rewire after 25. It's just certain things have to happen. And if the brain is lazy, again, sort of lay terms, it won't want to take the effort. So if you go, oh, I want to learn a new foreign language. Well, you kind of have to go, well, how long is that going to take? How am I going to do it? What will be the outcome? And you might go, oh, that's going to take way too long. I don't think I'll do it. Or uh, I have to go to university or I have to do an online course. And it's like, I'm tired of being online. I don't want to do it online. So again, brain goes, let's not do it. Or, or the outcome, it's like, so, so what, do I, what happens if I get this? And then the brain might go, well, you know, there's an app out there that so if, uh, <laughs> so if someone says something in a foreign language, I just have to record it and then hit a button and it translates it for me. Well, maybe I don't want to do it. So um, the brain's always calculating and trying to figure this out. So, but after age 25, it's much harder. It's doable. So the saying, uh, you can't teach an old dog new trick, new tricks. No, that's wrong. You actually can. It's just that you really have to make sure that uh, you want, you're aware that you want to make the change. You get a little bit agitated because it's hard, uh, but then you want to focus in on doing it. You want to make sure you get rewarded. And then here's the thing that is surprising was again, surprising to me because that's not what I was taught is this actual rewiring. It occurs when you go to sleep. It's during, it occurs during sleep or rest. It doesn't occur while you're doing it. I always was taught that it occurs while you're doing it. Nope, later on. Why? Because the brain then has to process this, get rid of some of the junk in your brain when you sleep, and then do the neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity actually occurs during your sleep or, or rest. I was wondering, so is that a panacea? Does that mean that we can rewire the brain completely? Um, technically... You can't rewire the brain completely because there's certain things that aren't rewirable. You don't want you don't want your uh, digestive system to be rewired every single day. You don't want your circulatory system rewired. So there's certain processes that are the same. But your thoughts, yes. We would also say you could never. Uh, we don't think that you can get rid of memories. But you can probably reduce any emotional load that's attached to memories, especially if they're negative. Say it's a traumatic type thing. You're probably always going to have the memory, but we could reduce the emotional load that gets attached to those memories. Um, we could reinforce the positive ones. And so a lot of times people will revisit positive memories and that that's a, probably a good thing. They're locking in that memory. Um, but in terms of a total rewiring, no, but... 
uh, yes, you can rewire. So if I were to teach, you know, if you said I want to learn a new foreign language, you could do it. If you wanted to change a belief or a bias, yes. But depends probably how long that belief or bias has been there. With one exception, if you have a traumatic event, that tends to change things very quickly. So you see this, for example, someone has a heart attack, someone has a stroke, all of a sudden their dietary behavior changes, their exercise behavior, because it's like it was so traumatic, if you will, it's gotten your attention and you've decided to make a change. But hopefully we don't have to have trauma all the time. And that's, and that's, and sadly, that's kind of what happens to a lot of people. You know, they work, 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 you know, and then all of a sudden things go wrong. And they knew going, you know, they should have balance. They should have good connections. So, yeah, that's, you need to be aware of that. But yes, we can rewire, but not every single thing in, in that brain of yours. So let so there was a study done. There was it was the Netflix Babies, the episode one. They're talking about the study. Actually, looked it up. I, it, so it does exist. It wasn't just some some or another claim. Um, but I'm sure you know about it. Where babies were looked at at eight months of, of at the age of three months, and they could uh, distinguish individual features. And from about nine months, people became – they were classified into groups. So when you look at the primary caregiver, it was an individual and people that looked like the primary caregiver, but everybody else started being classified as a group. Um, but that was also true for primates. So the question to me is that kind of wiring that starts that early on, is that able to be rewired? You could probably adjust it a little bit, but it's it's always going to be there because that's that's the first memory. That's again, you talk about imprinting on animals, um, but in terms of then, the brain wants those wiring instructions. It's going to come from that individual or that small group of individuals, and so the brain sort of focuses on that. And uh, now early on, the brain doesn't, the baby doesn't know the concept of parent or mom or dad or caregiver but the baby then starts to associate because remember the information is coming in from sensations it's uh how does how does the baby feel when it's picked up or hugged or fed uh or cleaned up because we have to do that with babies and so uh when you go through this it's they're always processing this information and so they can quickly figure out who's this primary and that you get good stuff from this person versus those that don't. So kind of you're like in and then group or, you know, important and then kind of everyone else. Over time, though, you can start to change that, wire that. And so um, that would probably, again, depending on your uh, inclination. Mm-hmm. Do you want a large uh, circle of friends or do you want a small one that maybe has deeper? Again, that will be preferences and you can do, you can decide that uh, as an adult. Actually decide it as you're growing up. I think you said, I'm going to tell you a story and then you you tell, um, because I'm trying to, for what I've looked at from my perspective, I think I've tried to find ways to explain 
Um, and maybe you can help me with that. When I was growing up in Africa, it um, we moved to a different area, and my best mate there was one of the black boys that was on the farm. Let's call him Johnny, all right? Um, and one day, and Johnny's mum was a bit um, strict on Johnny, so when he had to do his chores, he had to do his chores. So one day he was playing with me with the cars, and um, and then dust. We were playing, making little animals out of mud. You know, the things that kids do. You know, you you play with what is around you. And um, Johnny was called by his mum, and she, he, he ran back to her, grabbed a bottle, and he ran off, and then he fell. And in, a try, in an effort to try and save the bottle, he basically cut open his stomach. And so from, I just heard him scream, and so I ran over to him, and I um, I saw my friend basically lying there on his back with his gut spilling out. And there was I, it's something I've only remembered in the last six weeks due to hemochromatosis. I, for a long time, I've forgotten about this. So I had a conversation with my mom about it in the last two weeks as well, trying to understand some of the facts because some of the facts I was missing. But one of the, the thing for me was two days later I was told that Donnie didn't make it because I, I sat there next to him for about what felt like hours, but eventually till the ambulance came and they were taken away. And then two days later I heard that he had died and I'd not really said goodbye in a way. But he was my friend. And a few months later, I went to school for the first time. And I went to a white school. And so I was told, what are you so upset about? It's just one of them. And since then, the word them has had a really profound influence on my life. And when I came out at 26, I became a them. And so for me today, when I hear people say the word them, it is like you are part of a group, you're not part of us. And so when people start talking about people at work, it doesn't matter if it's women that men are referring to or women that refer to a, a specific woman referring to somebody lower in the hierarchy. or It doesn't matter. The moment I hear that word them and you shouldn't care – I just wonder, is this where it starts? Is it, does it start at nine months? Is it that ingrained in us? Yeah, actually it is. And so since you have that information, you're, again, under age 25, it was very plastic, if you will. The brain could be wired. You also had what they would say is that in any type of traumatic event, the neurons get what we call it stamped. They sort of get like highlighted. So any trauma highlights those, those connections. And they, I'm going to say, cement them, stamp them. And so that's why it's hard to break those connections. So the first thing you did by getting more information is then now you can add to it. Now that memory is never going to go away. So let's talk about the initial trauma there there he is, you know, and, and he's, he's injured and, as it turns out, deathly injured. So that memory is never going to go away. But you can lessen some of the emotional load by adding new memories in now. You know, maybe because you, you also mentioned that in an effort to save the bottle. So there's, there's certain pieces there that, that 
may help lessen the load. Still, maybe you feel sad, but you start to understand the nobility of maybe his behavior or the reasons why. Or maybe even go, well, it seems stupid. It was a bottle. It was an inanimate object. It wasn't a real I have, I have no value. I have no value judgment on Johnny. None. Yeah. I, so I am... For me, for me, it became problem. It, it 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 started a disbelief in the apartheid system that I grew up in, because how could my friend not be valuable? Right. So let me so let me take it up to then. So then you find out he dies. You then go to school. So now your state is you've lost a friend. That's your mindset. Um, you're grieving, and in essence. The classmates, through their words and language, or the, the people at school, basically tried to diminish or take away your strong feeling. And that that created then a strong reaction on your part. It's like, not only no way are you going to do that, but then again, neurons got stamped with the word them, because that just sort of... Um, it basically is trying to deny your your feelings. It's like he's not a them. He he was my friend, and so the more you sort of look into what those words and connections that helps then to figure out some of your own grieving, some of your own sadness, and then what was fascinating is then it it, it then you took that even further then to say all right this is this is where bias this is where prejudice this is where discrimination comes about because if you can uh, what would be the word if you can diminish another group in any way that's that's basically where discrimination and prejudice and bias comes in you diminish them because you make them less of a human being and somehow to people then that allows them to have this bias prejudice or discrimination it's pretty sad it's pretty sad but it's there. And I'm, it just wondering, I'm just wondering, can we break that in a way? Because I mean, we, if we look at um, cognitive empathy, um, or, or let's say our ability to see what other people are feeling, and effective empathy, our ability to feel with feel that the emotion that's attached to that, and then the the compassionate empathy, sort of the willingness to do. So let's call it the see, feel, do triangle, um, if you will. If we can't see the damage we're, we're bringing or this damage we're causing um, and the pain and the suffering we're causing, it is very easy to say, well, but I don't recognize that in other groups because I've imprinted on my own group, so I don't see the pain. I mean, one of the reasons I'm saying this is because a friend of mine recently said that um, she's a black girl from South Africa and um, I've adopted her. She's almost like a second, like a daughter to me now. Lovely girl, absolutely adore And um, she recently had an experience where a white manager basically said where she wasn't present, said, I don't know if I can believe that she's sad because I cannot see it on her face. And I'm going like, <laughs> just because you're blind doesn't mean it takes the, the other person is not feeling the pain, you know? And I'm, I'm wondering, does, does, that, does that mean that we need to look for cognitive empathy in companies and train people 
to have the difficult conversations where where we talk about those things that cause us pain and joy so that we can start to learn how to read the pain and joy signals on people's faces. Yeah, so here's been my experience on this, and this is where it gets, I think, uh, dicey. So if we take a, a, a team or a group in an organization and then you uh, have the thems or the minority, whatever, you want to label, to try to speak up so that others can see or feel what's going on. The people that are in the minority feel very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And then they worry that they won't be heard or seen. Mm -hmm. Or they worry that the people that are being told this will downplay it. Oh, no, you're, you're, you're oversensitive. You're... And so I think it's just understanding basic relationships. It's understanding that uh, your experiences are very different than mine and that where's the commonality? And sometimes having the outside consultant, the outside uh, presenter can set the groundwork and then maybe invite people in. But you really need to create, as you know, a safe place for people to have an open, honest dialogue because you have to overcome power hierarchies, um, status inequities, <clears throat> and all those come into play if we're trying to have an open dialogue. <clears throat> and so I think that's the biggest challenge of any organization is how do you create that safe environment where there is an open, honest exchange where you don't have somebody say, well, I feel this way and not have somebody else go, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Mm. Or I'm sorry you feel that way. Well, oh, that's not, that, no. yeah, that's not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's not helpful, you know, versus <clears throat> now sometimes both sides have to work harder to either explain as well as to hear. But I think when you do that, you start to understand, again, you've heard the term recently, microaggressions. You start to understand that, oh, well, yeah, we've, we've sort of been insulting people all along. And, and then, you know, as you rightly point out, someone hears this and they think, wow, you know, I can't read your, I don't know when you're sad. Well, you know, most of us would go, ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely, <laughs> yeah. You know, are you sad? You know, or, you know, I, I can't, I'm, I have heard saying, you know, I always say, start with the facts. I am having a hard time reading you. Yeah. It's a fact. Tell me what you're feeling or I sense that you're sad. I'm not, you know, or I don't make the statement you're sad. You know, I sense again. I make I statements. I sense that you're sad, or I'm I'm struggling to read your emotions. Can you share with me what's going on? Mm. And so then it's, it's to me that's just sort of basic communication, and we we sometimes take this leadership and move it into this big massive thing when actually it's kind of basic stuff. You want to know something? Ask them. <laughs> yeah. You know, ask, and then we'd say, shut up and listen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's the other side of it, of course. Yeah. I think what, what for me was really interesting is having grown up in Africa, I seem to be able to 
understand the pain on African faces better than most Europeans. Okay, now that I live in in, in Europe. I, it, it becomes sort of jarring. You can see it. In Africa, I never really noticed because a lot of people around me grew up in a similar scenario because my nanny was black. So f- right from the from the get-go, you know, you, you get that experience. But I couldn't read Chinese faces um, or Asian faces, uh, Japanese, Chinese, Taiwanese. It doesn't matter. I just like it, – it's like a blank canvas. And so I went to Beijing for 10 days um, as an exchange program. And the time that I was alone, I actually spent it sitting next to the little lake in the middle of Beijing. I'm trying to get like, okay, I've got to figure this out. I mean, the, the, these people cannot not have emotions. You know, this doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. So the, I remember the first couple where I, well, first two people that I started seeing something. Um, was a couple that was walking hand in hand towards me. And I went like, but where are all the cues? Where's the, where are the cues that says they're in love? I mean, they're looking at each other. Why can't I see they're looking at each other lovingly? W- what's wrong with me, you know? So I just kept on looking. And people were looking at me really strangely because here, here's this weird foreigner sitting there staring at people, you know. But I learned so much in, in, in those few days. And... One of the first things that, came, that that I learned after sort of trying to look trying to look for love because that was the the one that I thought was the easiest one to try and find cues for, and the other one I was looking at was facial expressions about facial structures. And all of a sudden, about two days in, I went like, "Hmm, that person looks more like they're from the south, and that person looks more from the north." And then you start asking people stuff, and yeah, okay, they're Han, they're from the South, you know, or they're Mongolian, they're from the North. And then you start looking at nuances, but it takes a lot of effort. Again, the rewiring your brain, time, energy, patience, uh, and, and the brain tends to want to do the least, and now you're having to expend energy to do it. And I think that's, I, I think you point to uh, strong leaders take that time. Strong leaders are willing to continue to learn, to add new stuff. And you, you have to, if, for me to be a strong leader, you have to be willing to change. You have to be willing to, and again, in the brain, to rewire, to add new stuff, get rid of old stuff that's not working. And it's always examining what you were told, what you were taught, what you believe, and try to keep re- reexamining it. And that that's kind of a different mindset when your own brain is saying, but I don't really want to, or, you know, (laughs) if if, if I burn this energy now, I might not have anything left at the end of the day. So maybe I just, and and so I think it becomes a a mindset. It's a way to approach it. Uh, You know, exposing your ignorance daily or, you know, what, what do I need to learn today? Uh, I'm trying to do more and more because, um, uh, you know, we have our beliefs, right? And they've, they've been wired into us pretty much. <clears throat> so I'm using more and more language using the word hypothesis or hypothesize. So my hypothesis is that, and then, I will state like, you know, Eckstein's really excited about this. So it's so I hypothesize in my mind, then I wait to get data to see if it confirms or disconfirms it. So it, it again, I'm probably showing more of 
uh, scientific sort of decision making that that you know I was trained in at university. But I remember an article a zillion years ago, and, and he talked about having a family of hypotheses whenever you were researching something. And at first, it was like, well, wait a minute, you know, you have to have your your uh, null hypothesis, and then you have your alternative hypothesis. And his was, you need to have a family of hypotheses. And his, his thinking was, or his point was, is you have a whole bunch of hypotheses because that way you're open to whatever versus having one hypothesis and then looking for all the information that confirms it. And now we know with confirmation bias that if you believe a certain thing, then not only will social media start trying to feed you stuff that you already believe, your own brain will start feeding your stuff that believe. And so I'm trying to open my own brain up by saying, well, here's a hypothesis. You know, why did, why did that driver cut me off? Or why, why was that person rude to me? And so instead of then reacting right away, it might be, well, maybe something happened bad to them. Mm. Maybe they grew up that way, with that they're supposed to behave that way. Maybe that, that they're distracted. Or, and so I generate, you know, a bunch of hypotheses, and then I wait to see if I can confirm it. Even if I can't confirm it, I've at least generated a whole bunch of hypotheses, and I don't then label them. I don't mm. do the, that's how they behave. No, it's, mm. it, and, and so I'm trying to do it. It's, it's, um, so I'm trying to gamify it, <laughs> make it a little <laughs> bit of a game to keep, to keep rewarding myself for trying to do it. But um, even if, if, uh, if I'm watching TV with uh, Pamela in, in, I'm like, I'll try to predict what's going to happen. So my guess is, or my hypothesis is, da-da-da-da-da. And then typically, and that's what's nice sometimes about the TV shows, you find out if your hypothesis would correct <laughs> or not. <clears throat> but that's good because now, now I'm getting that feedback in terms of later on. So anyways, that's something I'm trying to do uh, in leadership roles or trying to guide. It's, it's like generate a bunch of hypotheses, and he used the family because he said, you know, if you have a lot of kids, you shouldn't have favorites. Well, we all have favorites, but you shouldn't mm -hmm. have. I, I was the favorite in my family of 10. So, yeah. But if you talk to every one of my siblings, they were the favorite, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was the eldest grandson, so, um, and the eldest in my family. So I got favored in a lot of things, probably unfairly. And um, I can only say thank you. I, I can't change the history of the past, you know. Um, but I like the way that you say about hypotheses. I, I, I do something similar. It, it started for me in, from a different point, though. Um, I was at Harvard at the summer program, and we were talking about mediation and negotiation and things like that. And Sheila Heen in this course basically said that um, we should never – imply intent from impact so if something hurt me we normally sort of yeah you must have wanted to hurt me that's why i'm hurting and the moment we take a step back from that and so but what are all the other things that would explain that behavior um and we know that intentions are never 100 percent pure then when we read people's emotions on their faces for instance which one are we reading? 
if there's three or four or five things going at the same time in someone's mind, how else am I going to know unless I inquire? And so that started a similar process for me that if something happens to me that I go like, you know what, they must have wanted to hurt me. On the one side, I will hypothesize. And the other side, I also ask myself, but is it important? Is it, in, is it important enough for me to spend energy on this? That, will it lead to some insight? Will I gain something from this? If not, how can I let go of it? Pamela and I do a similar thing. If we're, if we're like, you know, so she's a surgeon, you know, and I'm, I'm an emeritus professor. And, you know, we kind of sometimes, and then at some point we just stop and go, is this going to make a difference seven years from now? And if the answer is no, <laughs> let it go. If the answer is yes, though, then we will stay with it and work it through. But a lot of times you, you realize that you're being upset or <clears throat> discussions. It's more of, um, you know, maybe maybe you're just filled up with a whole bunch of irritations and then one thing triggers it and then you get at it, you know, and it's like, so same thing. We're trying to like, will, will this make a difference seven years from now? If the answer is no, drop it, forget it. doesn't matter, you know? And so I think it's, I think it's important to have that you're always sort of looking at your own behavior. You're always trying to figure out how do we, how do we do things? So here's the thing that makes me um, kind of crazy. So people seem to be willing to change fashion, change their car, change their style. You know, it's like, oh, this fashion's out of date, so I'm going to update my my fashion look. Or, um, you know, for men, it was like size of collar or ties or, or you know, again, the uh, on jackets, whatever. Why don't we have a similar thing when it comes to our thinking? Why why don't we sort of go, you know, that thinking's out of style. It's out of fashion. And I need to upgrade or update or change my thinking. And and again, I'm trying to make sure I'm incorporating that into my life. It's like um, I've started in uh, the presentations that I give to leaders and, and groups. I'm putting an expiration date. <laughs> on my presentation. So I have, so I have like a, a, a little bottle of milk, you know, it's the Dr. Mallet or brain elixir, you know, <laughs> and I put an expiration date on it. And it basically says this content's good for X number of years. And then, you know, you should throw it out or it forces me to keep uh, updating the information. And it, it keeps... I keep looking at, you know, is this true? Is there research? Is there data? And if there isn't, then I try to be very clear is that this is my belief or my experience or my opinion mm. versus data has shown or research has shown. And then, you know, if I, I, I talk about that. Mm. I think it's the same thing. If you, I, I like to look at the data, I like, like to look at the data, and then sometimes you have to hypothesize because there's no research being done yet in in something that might connect things. And you go, what if this is true? You know, could we could we do something with that? I think it's um, yeah, it's an interesting expiration date. So let's talk about expiration dates. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> 
20 years ago, actually, no, 30 years ago, when I first went to university, oh, God, I feel so old, old now. Um, <laughs> we've already taught about things like um, elements of Jungian psychology. You know, it was, I mean, that's 30 years ago. The field of psychology has moved so much in the last 20 years, especially in the last decades, with, with big, the advent of big data and meta-analysis and stuff. It has become so interesting. Yet, in business, we still hark back to theories that go back to Jung and classifying people into four colors. I, I don't understand that. <laughs> Do you think... Four, four categories of people or may, maybe add another eight in every four. And so what do you end up with, like 32 or something? How, what do you think of these kind of systems in, 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 in ways so, of so, teaching people or helping people? So here's my thinking on that. Um, Jung, first of all, I think was a, a genius off the charts, probably way, way ahead of his time. If you've ever read his stuff, I'll speak for myself. It's incredibly dense. It's like it's like I could reread sometimes the same page 15 times and not be any clear. I mean, he just packs so much in. Um, if we try to teach people some systems, some readily, maybe memorable systems. I, I'm okay with that. But it's just like, but they're systems. It's a way to think about something. Where I get a little crazy is that then I go, well, so Eckstein, uh, you're an introvert, so therefore you are going to have a hard time uh, speaking uh, in front of crowds. It's like, really? It's It's like, you can't, in that case, you can't put people in a box and say, well, then you can't be anything outside of that box. Mm. But if it helps one think about themselves and others, again, in the hypothesis way or, wow, uh, Eckstein was raised that you should be as a kid. He was told uh, kids are to be uh, seen but not heard. Or Eckstein was told, would just go off in the corner and read and be by yourself, you know? Okay, then maybe I, I get some understanding of you and myself, but I don't want to then say it's predictive of all your behavior. So that stuff makes me crazy when they, when they put them in boxes and takes away their humanity. It, 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 it becomes, as you said, the brain's lazy. So what I what I see a lot, people go like, oh, yeah, he's red. He is. And then creates a them category called red. And everybody that's red is in that category. And if I'm right. blue, the red people and I will never get along. And I'm going like, you've just missed a plethora of beauty by yeah. just looking at a color. I mean, it's it's. Do right, so these me, things me, really me, still have a place in our society. Yeah. And so so let me go to what you had said about, you know, you look at business and what they've done. Psychology has changed enormously. So here's one. You see it in all these leadership courses. They say that basically you have three brains. You have a reptilian brain, you have an emotional brain and you have a thinking brain. 
This is so wrong. It is so wrong because remember we talked about the brain, the spinal cord, uh, the organs, the connections to and from. So, I mean, that's your entire nervous system. Uh, no, we don't have three brains. And yet if you take leadership courses, they talk about, oh, we have to be aware that if the emotional brain is overwhelming the uh, rational or thinking brain, you know, you'll have problems. And uh, no. And yet, so here you have, and, and this is true of many areas, it's not caught up with the real data, the real research. Three brains probably came about, I think it was in the 60s, they were looking at uh, human brains and animal brains, and they had a microscope. <clears throat> they were looking at, you know, cells, you know, under a microscope. Well, let's just say the technology has advanced quite a bit from uh, having a microscope. And so in similar ways, again, expiration, we need to be updating stuff. We need to be throwing some of the stuff out. And that's, I think it's exciting, but it's going to take some energy if you were taught. And even I was taught that you had these three brains. And then it's mm. like, and then it's like, no, it's no, everything's in a continuous loop. And yes, emotions can Im impact thoughts and thoughts can impact emotion. I mean, it's, it's this whole interplay, but it's not like, uh, okay, so here's the reptilian brain, you know, and here's your emotional brain. And so it's, it's crazy. So yes, I'm, I'm all for, uh, uh, different professions or people that are using the psychology, uh, in the neurosciences to update their thinking and get rid of stuff that's expired many years ago. And as you I know, it's frustrating. Me. It's frustrating to find out this stuff's junk or it's no good. It's like, oh, oh no. yeah. What am I going to do now? You know, uh, I'm going to go expend energy to find something new. That's right. I've been saying it for call, years. Call Ixian and and John. We'll tell you what the new stuff are. Um, I, I just think one of the things I try and get get to people in, in normally when I work with these kind of assessments, I normally do the behavioral stuff. Because it's the first one that's easy for people to say, yeah, I recognize that. It has to do with recognizability. And that's where I stop with it. Because it's a case of, okay, now that you've recognized that people behave in a way that their environment allows them to, okay, just because I'm gay doesn't mean I'm going to flirt with every man in the Middle East. Trust me, I know where I'm safe and where I'm not. You know, be I know what to be careful about. And so... Um, we, our environment hems us in or this steers a lot of our behavior, in my view, and, and who we are is sometimes hidden behind the behaviors that we do to satisfy our environment. And I just believe if we look at, look at a person and give them the credence that they're more than their behavior, then it allows us to connect at a deeper level. And then I like to use things like, do you know the um, values in action from Nimic and Martin Seligman? No. The VIA <laughs> character surveys. It's a more a classification system than, uh, um, than let's say, a, a predictive system. But it does talk about those things that you're passionate about or those things that you find that you like doing. So for me, and then they, use, they, they have a, a list of them and you get classified into those and one of the things that for me was interesting to see is that love was one of the definitions in the top five that i of the things that i like but the definition then is love is not romantic love love is about reciprocal relationships 
Okay, so at my core, I'm not an altruist. I believe in reciprocal relationships. So that started to, a lot of things started making sense for me. You know, um, so I like you if you like me, kind of thing, and that sort of made sense. But it's also I have this insatiable need for learning. Don't know why, but it's there. But now I have a little label with it and go like, yeah, that's me. It's recognized myself in it and I can talk about it because I've now got a label that I can attach to something. And the other one was creativity, which is actually my to- the, the top thing that motivates me the most. And it's not creativity in the sense of pick up a brush and, and, and turn yourself into a Van Gogh or Rembrandt. But it's more like Rembrandt developed a new way of painting or creating a new process to solve a problem. So it's more attached to problem solving than it is to, um, to expression. And so I found that those definitions interesting because it's given me insights and ways to talk about stuff that I wasn't able to label before. And so for me, I think all of these assessments and stuff we do should give us something to help us talk about stuff. It's like we have a difficult time talking about emotions because we don't have labels for all the emotions. So learn a few more labels and you can talk more freely. Well, and it's and you're hitting upon, you know, the age old philosophy of, you know, know thyself. So, so, you know, if we were to advise leaders or you were to advise leaders, it's like you really need to know yourself. We talked about that earlier about know yourself, know your strengths, know your limitations. And so... If these devices give you the language or maybe a label or the category, then I think that's that is helpful because it's like, you know, so if I if I use the Jungian theory of extroversion and introversion and not so much uh, in the layperson's term, but more what Jung was trying to talk about is like, where do you go to get your energy? And so the extrovert is going to go externally to the environment and to people, and the introvert is going to go inward. And if it gives you a way to be thinking about how you behave during the day or um, why uh, you might feel exhausted after giving a presentation, whereas someone else gives the same presentation and just feels like they're wired up crazy, you know, well, you start to understand, oh, this is a way to think about it. And it's a way then to build relationships. So knowing yourself, again, age old advice, but probably now has a fair amount of neuroscience and psychology uh, to go with it. As long as you don't then use it like you reference as kind of this restrictive piece to put people in a box and the blues don't talk to the reds and, you know, the oranges are, you know, in another planet. And, you know, no, it's, it's more of to say there's a richness that uh, this individual may value that's different than what you value, but doesn't mean that we can't get along and we can't learn from one another. So I, I think the, advice of knowing yourself, knowing your strengths, however you come to that, I think is, is a good use, but then don't use it as an excuse. Well, the reason I do that (laughs) is because I'm no, 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 no. We don't excuse behavior. Um, 
we maybe try to explain it and understand it, but not excuse it. I think that's one of the reasons why I like to talk about the things that get people excited more than the things that get people upset. Um, the upset lingers and it becomes something that we ruminate about. Sometimes English catches up with me. Um, it's what happens that when it's not your first language. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we could ruminate so, about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we ruminate about it. And, and so you, you chew on this again and again. And, and, and so the, these negative thoughts start ruling your life. And I, I believe that if we, if we find the beauty in others and within ourselves and connect with that, we start seeing beyond the differences, but we see towards the connections. And so the, the, I normally give people these labels to say, well, okay, now how, if that person identifies with that, how does allowing you or giving you the opportunity to allow them to be that, right, what would that look like? And so you have a conversation about allowing people to be who they are and giving a safe space so that they can speak up and say, yes, that is something I associate with, or no, I'd like to tweak it. But it gives a starting point for a conversation that I think leads to depth um, and connection. Nice. The other thing that, to tie into what you're saying about like the remuneration or um, – since your brain is always trying to predict the future, so something ha- you know something happens to you, your brain immediately then is trying to predict, you know what's what's going on here, and how you know what's going to happen. So it's always trying to figure out what's going to happen, or it's preparing the body for what it thinks is going to happen. And the way that happens is it goes and looks at the memories that are in here. So one of the things that we would say, if you want to change behavior, you need to add new memories because then they become part of the system that when something happens, the brain's going to prepare. It looks at now the new memories as well as the old memories. And so by like when you said, uh, what would happen if? And so you're creating new memories, new thoughts, and they're getting put into your brain or by taking time and talking to someone and trying to understand those become new memories because maybe you, you have old memories or old experiences. And so you always want to be putting in these new memories rather than just the same oh same oh same oh And again, I will, I'm jumping a little bit on the soapbox, but be very careful then of the social media because they have the um, algorithms and uh, artificial intelligence that's basically going – Okay, so Eckstein clicked on this button, So, and then last time he clicked on this. So I think he has this belief. So we're going to then feed him stuff that we think he's going to like. And so you have to then make sure you're building in maybe things you don't like or... You know, so I try to mess with their little algorithm because I might be clicking on dog food, even though I don't have a dog. And then maybe, you know, like neuroscience. And then so it's like I'm bouncing all over the algorithms. Like I don't know what to send them anymore. But it's like always trying to expose myself to other things, even though it might make me crazy. You know, watching uh, channels or listening to speakers or 
uh, listening to uh, politicians whose maybe point of view I don't agree with. It's hard because, again, it's, I'm having to expend energy, but I'm trying to put new memories in there rather than just feeding myself what I believe or, you know, what I think, because that's easy. That's pretty easy. It doesn't create I have this, energy. I have this weird little habit that <laughs> I don't know if I should publish this online, but anyway, <laughs> when I go to the bathroom and I know I'm going to stay there for a little bit longer, um, I switch on a VPN on a specific mobile device that I have, and that basically reports my IP to be somewhere else, and I don't log into any social media, but I do do searches. And it's literally, literally all this stuff that I believe I look for the opposite and see if I find something. And then I started looking for, is there research to back it up? Yep. And, it, and, and then I can go look at, 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 and look for those papers again when I'm back behind my computer mm -hmm. and see if, if that is actually something. Yes, algorithms will go all haywire again. But I'm just trying to look for, can I find a paper? And if I find one paper, can I find multiple papers? And uh, are they recent, you know? And so uh, you, you find stuff sometimes. I mean, one of the things I found this past week, um, <clears throat> let me just quickly scroll through here because I, I – I want to tell you this. Um, paper from 2020, for 2021. Okay, uh, it was um, final publication. It was last edited, sort of like submitted in August last year. But it is storytelling increases oxytocin and positive emotions and decreases cortisol and pain in hospitalized children. I'm going to myself, storytelling now is... The panacea for a lot of stuff, you know, but it is an interesting perspective. It's it's of uh, so the thing I've started to do. I actually have done this for a long time because it's when I hear and I, again I'll refer to uh, leaders and speakers. Those are sort of two groups that I interact a lot with, and even healthcare is when people say stuff and that it's just not true. So I've gotten in the habit of trying to remember their phrase or their statement, and then I put it into Google and I put false or myth or not true, or I even go to scholar.google and put those in. And it's amazing how people say stuff is just not true. You mentioned the storytelling. So I've been working on what speakers have to do, leaders have to do, if they want to be an effective storytelling teller. So here's the thing, which is fascinating, which now ties into what you just talked about. Effective storytelling, first you have to have um, some cortisol released in your audience's brain. And so you have to have a little bit of this agitation, like, or anticipation. So, you know, it's like the, you know, a speaker, a politician, and a, a minister walk into a bar, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, all right. And then um, the oxytocin has to be released. And so you have to, um, you have to have some type of connection. And then dopamine has to be released. And then epinephrine. So I'm calling it code, know your code. And so it's uh, cortisol, oxytocin, dopamine, and, and uh, epinephrine. And if you like adrenaline, it could be CODA. You could do, change that for epinephrine if you wanted, CODA or CODA. And so <clears throat> it doesn't surprise me 
in terms of the storytelling of then reducing pain or having an impact. Or uh, when, remember, I uh, was hot long, a number of years ago of uh, using humor to reduce, especially in cancer patients, uh, giving a steady dose. Why? Because then, we, you know, you found that laughing and, and humor uh, was releasing, you know, endorphins and then the endorphins, you know. So it's, again, it's all this interconnected, continuous stream of communication between the brain, uh, the spinal cord, and the organs. And so, yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. But yes, I, I love, uh, I think we should have a speaker's myth builder. I think we should have a, or myth buster. I think we need a leadership, you know. Myth busters, and uh, we should put a lot of stuff that leaders and speakers and people of power say that we go, you know, that's just a crock. <laughs> yeah. Strangely enough, talking about that, I'm actually researching now for a book. I'm calling it Leaders, um, CEOs or Leaders, Myths, Monsters, and Gods. Nice. And some of the myths is about, yeah, mythbusters. What, what do people believe about leadership, both leaders and people that are not in leadership positions, about leadership? Yep. And that's not just not true or may not be true anymore. Yep. And what is, what, is, what, is it, what is it like to work for a real monster? So I'm busy setting up a survey at the moment specifically for assistance and virtual assistance to tell me their stories of what the monsters they've worked for before. Of completely anonymous, of course. It's about the story gathering. And then try and see, can we explain those monsters and the impact that they have? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's, a, yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating so far, the stuff that's coming in. <laughs> Love it. It's really Love interesting. It. Love it. Yeah. Brains love stories. You may know it's probably our original way to communicate the, your culture, your mores, your um, who your heroes and heroines were. And so um, storytelling has a, a rich history in terms of uh, the brain and how the brain functions. It's pretty, it's pretty cool stuff. And what I'm loving more and more is it feels like the neuroscience is catching up now with a lot of stuff, you know, as simple as, uh, so Eckstein, why, why'd you make that decision? And you tell me why just, I just had a gut feeling. Well, now we know there's, there's actual neurons in your gut, your intestines. And it's like, Oh, maybe, maybe we've sort of caught up to what's in the language that people use I Had a gut feeling, you know, um, yeah. why'd you, um, you know, why did you think this wasn't safe? It was like, well, something was whispering in my head, be careful. Well, that was probably then, you know, the adrenaline in terms of the fight or flight and preparing the body for something. And uh, and then the other one, you know, as we, as we sort of hit upon this, we would also say is that too much of uh, some of these neurotransmitters and neuromodulators is bad. And so a um, recent uh, paper I saw talked about that the gaming or uh, kids being on their uh, devices is causing this uh, dopamine high. And it's just, again, they're being rewarded and the dopamine is being released. And what happens is the body is then trying to regulate that because it's too much. So then it tries to bring it down. So now as it's trying to regulate these modulators, or transmitters, it's taking energy. 
now that energy is not available later on. And so you have this fatigue syndrome that's going on. So it's all, it's all interconnected. It's all, but it's pretty cool stuff. I think it's also when you talk about endorphins and, and it usually gets, re- uh, from what I've read, it gets released during exercise. And so Absolutely. it's as a, as, as a <clears throat> counterpoint to help you sustain the exercise because the pain that you might feel during exercise and so, on the other hand, we know that social rejection causes feelings that are similar to physical pain. So what does that mean? When you feel rejected, you should go on a treadmill? Well, it might be a coping mechanism for many people because it's like, at least you're going to sort of counter that, that feeling. So, yeah, um, we would know if you're feeling bad or you're feeling depressed, move your body. Yeah. You're less inclined to because moving your body takes a lot of energy. Learning requires a lot of energy, and you're less inclined to do it. So what we're starting to discover is, uh, let's just call it now. So you have the thought, I'm feeling bad. I probably want to, I need to do something. Just do something now. Do it within 10, 20, 30 seconds. Just do something now. Um, boy, I feel like crap. Go put, go put your walking shoes on or, or running shoes or whatever. Just do something now. Or go upstairs, change. Go in the other room, change. Do something now. Um, you know, one of the things is, uh, if, if, especially when we're maybe commuting or driving more, it's like the you knew you're supposed to work out. But as soon as you went into the house or your apartment or, you know, your abode, you're like, now I'm home. So it's like, put your running shoes in your car. So as soon as you, you know, get home, take your regular shoes off, put your walking shoes on. Now you've taken one step. You're much more likely than to complete the task if you've done one thing. But you have to do it now. Because if you wait, the brain's calculating how much mm-hmm. time it's going to take. <laughs> What do I, I think the same do? thing is true for, for smoking. I quit smoking. So there the exercise is not to do it now. Just yeah. postpone just postpone it a little bit longer. The problem or, is in COVID, that's become now postpone the exercise, which I don't think is a good thing. No. <laughs> but but maybe it's like, okay, stop smoking, then go do something else that then requires yeah. you to use your hands or move your body or to be inhaling. And so... Uh, yeah, it's not doing one. And then some will say, not do one, but do something else. So you put them together. You do both sides of it. So you kind of try to fatigue the brain. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's, it was an interesting experience quitting smoking. It took me six months eventually to, after about a few failed attempts. And the bottom line for me was I needed to turn it into from a habit into a deliberate action. Yep. So I put an elastic around the packet, and so I had to think about it. And when I started becoming so deft at removing elastics from a packet, um, because that (laughs) happens, um, I started putting an elastic the other way around and then another one. So it became like this whole exercise of taking one elastic off after the other because I wasn't allowed to take it off all at the same time. And then I had to put them all back together again. So it became more of an effort to smoke than what it was to just go like, lit up and go, you know. And um, so that was one of the things. And it also got me over the point where the craving was the worst. So this first few seconds, you know, and so, yeah, I get that. And it is, uh, 
I think we need to also think about that in the case of human relationships, that first primary reaction we sometimes have to someone. Just, just hold off. In yeah. 20 seconds, 40 seconds, you're going to feel different. Don't yep. react right now. Yeah, smart, smart. Isn't it? Wouldn't it be a better world, a better place if we can teach people not to press send and just wait a few more seconds? <laughs> well, and you've noticed that more and more of these now give you a five second, like you can get it. You know, there's a five second. Um, so you do your email, you hit send, and then it says it starts to render, and you have like five seconds or sometimes ten seconds, and then you can cancel it before it gets sent. And I think that's partly because there's a lot of people that hit send and it was gone. And then you're like, oh, no, what have, mm-hmm. I, what have I done? And so there's actually a little bit of a delay now on that. I think it should probably be closer to 20 seconds. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, It's a trick that I was taught um, by a guy that was an amazing pro- program manager that I worked with at KPN at one point. And he said, of all your important emails, make sure that you send them once a day and never at the time that you type them. So he would have emails open in front of him, five, six emails, the most important emails for the day, and he would just have them open and then work on them. So he always makes sure that they're crisp and clear and that they, they only say what is necessary. No, so they leave very little room for interpretation, but at the same time, um, allow for clarity um, and for action. Nice. And so when I when I implemented that, this, this is also a structure that he used in that, a standard structure, obviously deviates from it. That's why there's a rule sometimes. Um, when I started using that, I went from over 260 emails a day that was coming into my mailbox to less than 40. Nice. And I went like, okay, where do I spend the energy on reading the replies or on making sure that what you sent is proper? <laughs> and um, sometimes I forget that. <laughs> uh, uh, interesting. So, John, I think we've um, we've spent a lot of time today, and I and I really enjoyed our conversation. But both of us have something else to go and do after this. I think. So, I think you should um, go say say hi to that lovely wife of yours. Will do. And um, I would like to thank you for being here today. I really enjoyed our conversation as always. And um, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you. And I, I, I love talking with you. And, and uh, you expand my brain and make my brain think and rethink. And that's, that's always a good thing. So thank you for that. And thanks for uh, hosting me today. And have a lovely day. You also. And we will talk soon. I think what I found interesting about this discussion with John was that cut off around about 25 years of age. I finally came out when I was 26. I think it's because I realized at that time that who I was was not going to change. I'm just wondering, how much are we actually influencing people around us that they have to carry that with, the rest of, with them the rest of their lives? I mean... When we're going into work in our early 20s, how much of that relationship burden we get saddled with are we going to be stranded with when we're over the age of 27? And how are we going to deal with it now with a pandemic being rampant and we're not really getting that personal interaction?
are we going to be restructuring brains forever? Could we use neuroplasticity, even if we have to push it to the limits, to reconnect as people? Well, I know from personal experience that after my PTSD in the military, it took me a while to get back to connect with people. And I now know that it's possible, but it takes a lot of work. So can we all commit to helping people under the age of 25 to find relationships that are worthwhile, authentic, and helps them to understand the connection between humans and how that is really, really important to be able to do our work properly. Well, I'm there, and I will, and I hope you too. Now go out there, be exponential, and do something nice for someone else. You can find us on the web by going to podcast.exponentially.me. We will also find additional media resources and some amazing insights.